Welcome back to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, titled, Creating a Healthier Future Through Prevention of Child Maltreatment. Good afternoon. I'm Patrick McCarthy. I'm the president and CEO of the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and I'm going to be describing some of the policy options for reducing child maltreatment, focusing especially on the factors that contribute to risk, poverty, family dysfunction, and the breakdown of community norms and supports. The Casey Foundation's mission is to foster public policies, human service reforms, and community supports that effectively meet the needs of today's vulnerable kids and families. We advocate for policies that can support the scaling up of evidence-based programs such as the kind that Janet walked us through that build stronger families. Policy approaches have limits. Compared to some of the programs we heard about, for example, there are no single or even multiple child maltreatment prevention policies with strong evidence of success. But if you're a policymaker and you want to reduce the risk of child maltreatment, the evidence suggests that you would enact policies that, number one, reduce poverty, number two, reduce the concentration of poverty in certain places, increase effective family strengthening interventions, and promote positive parenting norms. Now, I'm going to focus primarily on the poverty issues and the scaling up of evidence-based prevention activities. The data suggests that to reduce poverty, there are three things that a young person needs to do. Number one, complete high school. Number two, delay parenthood. And number three, achieve an early attachment to the workforce. National and state policy can help with all three of these. On the education front, federal and state policy can help reduce poverty by investing in high-quality early learning and literacy, as well as providing for opportunities for youth who need to find a way back to the educational opportunities if they've gone off track. In the area of delaying parenthood, policies can promote community-based pregnancy prevention, and in early workforce attachment, policy, of course, can provide support for summer jobs and supported work opportunities for young people. However, investing in the parents of that young person is also critical. This requires policies that ensure that work pays well enough to lift the family out of policy, if necessary, supplemented by additional income supports like the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit. Policies can also make it possible for parents to work. There's making work pay and there's making work work. In order for parents to be able to work, they need health coverage, child care, paid leave, and adequate unemployment benefits when we hit the kind of recession that we're in the midst of right now. In the area of building and protecting assets, policies can also help families develop and protect assets that can secure their economic success, such as individual development accounts that match savings, financial coaching, and restriction of practices that strip wealth from poor families and communities. For example, home ownership can be an effective means to build wealth. While the net worth of a typical low-income household is about $7,900, low-income households that own a home have incomes six times that, $50,000. Big question, though, can we actually reduce poverty? Well, there's some evidence that we can. 
if you look at the stimulus bill, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, we see that that mitigated the effects of the recession on children by temporarily expanding supplemental nutrition assistance program benefits, SNAP or the food stamp program, creating a temporary tax credit for working families, the making work pay credit, and expanding the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit. These cash and near cash benefits helped families meet their children's most basic needs at home while pumping money into the economy. It's projected that 6,100,000 families were lifted out of poverty in the 36 states and District of Columbia for which we have data, and that overall, the impact of the recession on poor folks reached a total of almost 33 million families. An example from overseas, the child poverty rate in Great Britain has been cut in half since 1994, using some of the same basic policy tools that we have available to us but haven't fully used. By contrast, the U.S. child poverty rate has trended upward since the year 2000, and children have proved economically vulnerable to increased unemployment. Some of the kinds of policies in Great Britain that led to these kinds of extraordinary results were increases in the national minimum wage, in comparable dollars, it's about $9.70, $9.70 in Britain, about $7.25 in the U.S. Tax incentives to encourage single parents to move into paid employment, increased public benefits for parents, universal preschool and regulations making it easier for parents of young children to request flexible work schedules. Again, poverty is one of many factors that increase the risk of child maltreatment, yet it appears to be the single largest risk factor. Let's be clear, most poor folks don't abuse their kids. However, being in poverty greatly increases your risk. But we also have to respond more effectively to allegations of child maltreatment when they hit our public child welfare systems. Federal policy can increase our national investment in research and evaluation of the kinds of promising interventions that Janet talked about, making sure those interventions are delivered with fidelity and at scale. We have a number of promising areas that we ought to be investing in, including providing universal contact and screening at birth, at age three, at school entry, and at the third, sixth, ninth, and eleventh grade, and by investing in evidence-based prevention programs as described earlier. Just one community-level example. Studies strongly indicate that children who attended Chicago's Child Parent Center preschool programs in the highest poverty neighborhoods experienced substantially lower rates of child maltreatment by the age of 17. For every dollar invested in the preschool programs, the return to society at large was $7.14 in reduced costs of things like remedial education, justice system expenditures, etc. States need to make these kinds of commitments to implement and scale up evidence-based prevention, early intervention and treatment tied to cost-benefit analysis. This requires changes in how programs are financed, how states ensure fidelity to these proven practices, workforce changes, contracting changes, and community engagement. Another critical policy element is how systems respond to allegations. For example, differential response systems focus on the, which focus on the well-being of the whole family are grounded in the premise that a one-size response to child maltreatment events simply doesn't work. At present, over 30 child welfare jurisdictions have completely or partially integrated differential response into their systems. Depending on how a state implements the approach, research indicates reductions in child maltreatment ranging from 20% to almost 70 percent. 
We also must shift funds from ineffective deep-end programs to prevention and early intervention. For example, the Casey Foundation has worked with New York's Administration for Children's Services on the goal of decommissioning 600 congregate care beds. These are very expensive deep-end beds. This goal was surpassed with the number of congregate care beds being reduced from a high of 4,174 in 2002 down to 2,192 in 2008, a 47% decrease. The importance of this is that yields a saving of $41 million, a portion of which was then reinvested in supportive and aftercare services. Policies that reduce poverty, that deconcentrate poverty, and attempt to change norms would all contribute to a decrease in child maltreatment. More direct responses to child maltreatment require scaling up of programs with best evidence. But our response to child maltreatment requires a commitment at the national, state, and local level all have a role to play. Our challenge is to build on the most promising examples and to persuade policymakers that these examples can be the norm rather than the exception. Given the cost of failure, the human consequences, and the investments that we will ultimately make if we choose to ignore this issue, the choice ought to be simple. Sound policy approaches that reduce poverty and scale up prevention and early intervention. In sum, my fellow panelists have shared the startling statistics and discussed the long-term consequences of child maltreatment in today's presentation. As startling as these may be, we all must work together knowing that child maltreatment can be prevented through the promotion of safe, stable, and nurturing relationships and evidence-based initiatives that address the broader community versus just looking at individual change. As a nation, we have the opportunity to invest in proven policy and other interventions that can make our communities and our children safer, healthier, and more able to contribute to our future strength. Thank you. Thank you very much to all the speakers. We now have about a little over 10 minutes for questions. The floor is now open for questions. We ask that you state your name and limit yourself to one question. Hi, my name is Marianne McDonald. Thank you for your presentations. One of the things that most of you alluded to is the epidemic nature of childhood sexual abuse, and yet there weren't a lot of specifics talked about in terms of the interventions. And I'm wondering, you know, if you could say something about that, especially since oftentimes a response to child sexual abuse will simply put the child in a situation where they have new potential abusers. And I'm wondering if something like adding child sexual abuse awareness to what the person learns while they're learning not to shake the baby might be a good idea. I welcome your thoughts. There is a lot that people do across the country around child sexual abuse prevention. Many of the efforts are personal safety programs in schools. Those have been evaluated to a certain extent. They've been evaluated to look at whether children heard the message, whether they understood it, whether they disclosed child sexual abuse after hearing about the, you know, what to do if someone approaches you. There haven't been any that have looked at whether or not being exposed to a program like that actually prevents child sexual abuse from occurring. So we don't really know the effectiveness of that for the ultimate outcome. So whether or not that could be added to um, something like abusive head trauma prevention, I think that 
I mean, that's an interesting idea. Um, one of the things that we're currently doing right now that I'll mention is working with Dr. Kim Miller, who works in the Global AIDS Program and has developed a great parenting program called Parents Matter Here and Families Matter that's going into some other countries internationally. And what we're doing there is trying to add a module on child sexual abuse prevention to a parenting program. That's in the development stages, but that's another place where I think specific information and conversation around child sexual abuse could be plugged into parenting programs. Thank you. Last question, Grant. Yeah, Grant Baldwin Injury Center. My question is for Dr. Turner. I wonder if you could speak to how you got the governor's commitment to child maltreatment prevention and the specifically referencing the public health role, because I think that's a real model that I think other states need to adapt. Thank you. There had been many years in the making of working behind the scenes on the part of staff at the Department of Health and the Department of Children and Families. With that previous administration, the Governor Christ, there were those within his administration who were supportive. So it was the stars aligning, I think, at that time where the legislation was ready, the interest was there. You had agency heads who he had appointed who were willing to take on the charge and move forward with it. So it was people who were waiting for the right opportunity to infuse the language, infuse the commitment, and a governor who was willing to take on the charge for children. I want to thank uh, the speakers again and thank the audience for their interest and attention. You've been listening to Public Health Grand Rounds from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, presented on ReachMD's series, Grand Rounds Nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.